Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm here today with Jason Bernagosi and Victoria Bradbury. Jason is an assistant professor of art in electronic arts at Colorado State University starting this fall. He is also the co-founder of the Experimental Media Arts Residency Program, Signal Culture. Victoria is a new media artist, researcher at CRUM, and assistant professor of new media at University of North Carolina, Asheville. And today, they'll be discussing teaching new media. So without further ado, I'm going to hand the conversation over to these two. Hi, Ellen. Hi, Ellen. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. I guess I'll, I'll kind of lead into it. Uh, you know, I've been thinking a lot about how new media has been taught where it, it may be going, uh, and and the kind of new methods that I've kind of been thinking about with it. For the most part, I think that new media has had a major problem, and maybe Victoria would agree or disagree with this, that it uh, has gotten very comfortable in its own uh, ghetto that it's formed for itself uh, within the, uh, the art world. And I, and I wonder if at times uh, we can apply some of the research models that make new media so effective to a way to reach out to uh, other art forms, uh, such as, you know, how does new media uh, connect to the history and the practice of photo montage the way that it was done with Hannah Hawk, or how, how do we get those kind of forms to understand better understand uh, suprematism under Elisitsky? Um and so some of what I've been approaching with new media is uh, trying to get students to understand the relationship threefold to a concept, uh, not only to the research of what a concept is, and not only to the technique in which to make the concept work, but also always relating somehow in, in some sort of aesthetic arena how that concept relates to a larger art world, not just within the art world that is segregated that we call new media art. Um, and, and, and most of the assignments that I'm working through right now, I'm always asking that question. So students are always having to present, they're always having to do research on those uh, kind of subjects while developing the form. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that the one thing that makes new media unique is that each person who's teaching new media will almost have a different definition of how they define new media in their own practice and then certainly how they teach it because people working within this field work very broadly. Um, anything from people doing digital illustration to more commercial animation practice to now virtual reality and augmented reality um, in both commercial and artistic forms. People fall anywhere on the spectrum from graphic designer and web designer to um, performance artists or installation artists. The practices are very broad. And so um, I think you see that within departments. Um, when you approach different departments as a visiting artist or um, a visiting scholar or when you're teaching in a department, it takes some time to navigate definitions. How do we define this field? How does this particular uh, academic department define this field? Within my own department at UNC Asheville, um, we currently differentiate new media into three different tracks. So we have an animation track, a video track, and an interactive track. And then the faculty on those different tracks, uh, where there are multiple faculty teaching in those different areas, 
we define those areas very differently. So um, within our interactive track, um, it's myself and Kurt Kloninger primarily teaching on that track. And in our teaching, we teach a lot of web design uh, and, and web practices, interactive media, um, which when, I, when I've taught some of the advanced courses, has fallen within the realm of interactive installation, physical computing. I tend to be more of an object maker. Um, whereas Kurt looks at new media performance, um, more kind of avant-garde performance practices. So um, thinking about just that notion of interactivity as being very broad and then taking that over to animation. And what do you mean by animation? Is it stop motion with a more traditional kind of, again, object-based focus? Or is it 3D animation? Is it 2D animation? Is it, you know, is it commercial artistic? So the field is incredibly broad and it's defined differently in you know, by every artist and every academic within the field. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. Um, you know, I, I guess like what I was trying to address when I was saying that we separate these things is um, is perhaps, uh, you know, there's, it's important to connect to those traditions that have made media important. Uh, at the same time, I almost wonder that the rigorous definitions uh, help create a bubble in in the way it's uh, new media is taught, where kind of more interdisciplinary interactions uh, are de-incentivized within uh, academia. And so one of the things I've been trying to think about when I'm especially teaching programming is how do you actually uh, talk about programming as a way to uh, think about larger subjects, you know, specifically with linguistics, right? How do you take a humanities-based approach to introduce students to programming that not only just get them to think about something that's a production, but that's something that has broader uh, research implications? Um, <clears throat> one of the things I think is really interesting is the kind of the, all the different ways that uh, new media can intersect as a as a way of thinking uh, a wider range of disciplines. Um, and as a personal note, you know, the way that I, I, I really come about it is I, I don't pretend that I'm a computer scientist. I definitely know how to program, and I think I've uh, programmed things that have been interesting over time. But I don't want my students to think about uh, kind of uh, learning about like programming or, or interactive art necessarily from the perspective of a computer scientist because that's not ultimately what they're going to do. Uh, what they need to do is actually to learn how to creatively reimagine some of the tools as they're working through them. So when they're working towards a concept that's more of a humanities-based thing and they run into technical issues, that they learn, have to learn a little bit more about the kind of fundamentals of programming as a part of that process, I feel like they're going to find ways to work around the kind of maybe more rigid, uh, discipline-specific concerns that I think that uh, another kind of like problem with new media that I think that, that new media sometimes has a tough time differentiating itself from computer science in the way that they teach how the tools work. You know, uh, do you really have to go through a certain amount of kind of computer science uh, style of learning uh, certain programming languages, or can we uh, kind of stop and start and create versus having to wait on creation in order to learn all this tech to front load the tech ahead of time. 
Yeah, no, no, I think that's an interesting conversation. And it's also interesting to think about requirements of different new media departments and whether those departments require students to take computer science courses and to what degree. Um, I know in our department, we, we require students to take one introduction to computer science course, and that has been dialed back from two. They used to take an introductory computer science course and then an advanced. Um, we have quite a close relationship with computer science, though, so we have a lot of students who cross over over or double major or minor in computer science and new media. Um, and so, you know, depending on that student's interest in programming, again, they can go through a new media curriculum and do a lot of programming, or they can go through a new media curriculum and just touch on programming or just do a little bit of it. But, um, you know, I think, as you said, it's, I, I do think it's, I think it's important for them to have the fundamentals of programming, um, and as you said, it, it's interesting to think about whether whether or not it's important for that to come from a computer science course or whether that can just be gleaned from a sequence of new media courses that they're taking. Mm -hmm. um, what, what kind of requirements have you seen in programs, Jason, in terms of taking computer science courses alongside of new media courses? Well, I think that um, at times... Uh, the requirements aren't necessarily to take a computer science course, but it's about the education and materials that people use going into like initial programming. So for instance, a lot of courses that require processing or even something like Max MSP, uh, which are great creative coding platforms that are kind of light in terms of the, the kind of uh, programming rigor that you need. Even those, the ways that they're doing uh, students are beginning to learn those programs, I think is not helpful, especially in terms of getting uh, painters and sculptors and all of these other artists to understand how new media can relate to their practice because they all feel like they have to jump through these kind of computer science hurdles and these exercises that seem arbitrary to their creative practice. Um, where So... You know, so again, there's not this. The, it's not an enforced requirement in terms of uh, outside curriculum, but I think people, uh, especially the way the materials have been presented. So I love Daniel Schiffman, by the way. He's an amazing uh, programmer, but ultimately, there's not a lot of creative room when you kind of take him uh, students through some of his beginning programming books. Whereas one of the things I would really like to do when I have students beginning to learn Max MSP Jitter is I actually really want them to be solving creative ideas initially. And I, as a part of the process, I teach them how to research in Max, and they may not know every function. They may not even know proper kind of programming protocols, but what they'll begin to learn is how to, uh, over time, how to slightly debug every single one of the objects that they begin to research. So for instance, one of the little things is technical assignments as they're doing their conceptual research. I'll just throw a couple bad programs that are actually deliberately bad where there's some syntax that's off, there's a message that the object isn't, uh, isn't supposed to uh, uh, react to, things like that. Uh, and students will have to kind of solve them. And once they solve that kind of program then they can then use that program in further investigating where they want to go with their larger conceptual project and so the, this helps students to not necessarily um kind of 
paint by numbers, which is what I think, like, especially a lot of early processing projects, everyone's project kind of looks the same. It feels very kind of paint by numbers. Like, you know, you, you do these programming, um, you know, we're going to develop these for loops and everyone's for loop with their ellipses are all kind of moving in generally similar patterns. I kind of question uh, those things, you know, uh, in terms of kind of building up a more contemporary art context for students to go into later new media projects. So it's, it's, yeah. Well, I, you know, you mentioned teaching students how to find the resources in order to complete their projects. And that's essential to teaching in this field because as practitioners ourselves, we're always working with different tools and those tools are developing constantly. And so for our teaching and for our practices, we're constantly having to research and learn, learn those tools and understand how to do that research and find the information that we need. Um, and so that's something that I've always you know, said in relation to new media, new media pedagogy is it's so much more about teaching students how to learn the tools than it is necessarily teaching them specific tools. Uh, because, you know, they might learn one version of a piece of software, and then by the time they're, they come back to working with that piece of software four, six, ten years later, um, it's going to have changed. Or a programming language is the, the language that people are using at any given time is going to change and develop. And that's certainly the case for the four years that they spend in university. Um, if they're learning a programming language in their, in their first year, let's say JavaScript, um, that's going to be developed uh, over the, the course of the four years that they're in university until they're applying that in their professional lives. And so uh, it's important that they learn how to do the research about those changing tools. And that's something that's very much integral to, to new media pedagogy. Um, and a tool that we can really give our students to help them to excel is how to do that research and how to find that information as it changes. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I'm in absolute agreement uh, with you on that. And, you know, that, that I really think is at the core of like how to think about where things go into the future and students understanding what their role is as artists. Um, you know, in many ways, even if they actually get some of the programming wrong uh, compared to what they pre envisioned the project to be, sometimes the wrong programming is actually more interesting. Uh, you know, one, one example I give is a project that I've done on the side that, uh, you know, it's my own personal work, so it's not necessarily teaching, but, um, you know, I've worked with David Jones uh, developing the Color Wobulator. Now, David Jones is a world-famous video synthesizer maker. He does not need me to think about engineering. He has engineering down. But what he but what he needed in that instance was I asked essentially and admittedly sometimes very naive questions, and I kept pushing him on certain ideas, and I never accepted his answers that I didn't feel were fulfilling. And actually through that process, I was able to creatively think around the problem that he was stating that we needed to solve. And uh, that that kind of role of somebody who can creatively and use design-based kind of thinking, right, to be able to research the, the, the subject, to kind of think around what an engineer necessarily would do, actually led to new discoveries about the Wobulator and actually helped Wobulators be more effective and safer um, to, to build. So in that same sense, in the classroom, if a student kind of, you know, is not necessarily, they should know about the protocol 
you know, eventually about, you know, certain programming protocols are necessary to know. Yeah, they should know about for loops at some point. They should know how to build their own objects, you know, and create their own classes. But um, but as they go through that process, that, that can be a process that happens way down the line because they may actually find a way to come to some similar uh, problems that uh, that some other computer scientists, but they may solve them in a very interesting way. As you know, Victoria, there's there's a billion ways to solve any kind of computational issue. And sometimes <laughs> I think our students, they, they find an answer and they think, oh, this is the answer, and they stop exploring, right? And that just becomes lodged. You know, I want them to constantly think and kind of constantly develop and like, well, maybe, maybe there'd be a more interesting answer if I continued to work through this problem and maybe in an in unconventional way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and I also wanted to jump back to what you were talking about earlier about histories of the field and in terms of histories of new media, but also histories of art and linking new media to that. Because I think there's a lot, um, lot to talk about there. But um, what I find often with new media is that students are aware, especially beginning students who are just beginning their study or beginning to work in new media, they're aware of working with technology, their awareness of working with technology and interfacing with technology is increasingly on a pretty surface level. Do you find that too, Jason? Like their, their understanding of how technology works. And I think this has a lot to do with the development of mobile devices. Um, you know, for example, I teach an intro to web and interactive design course. And most students that are in my classes now have been consumers of web technologies for the majority of their lives. And increasingly, um, in their teen years and in, in the last five to 10 years on mobile devices mm -hmm. and getting students to understand and get excited about how, how these things work, so how the mobile platform works, um, looking under the hood, understanding the code, but also the hardware that goes into that, um, and simply kind of breaking down that idea that you just click an app and you work within that app, and that's your entire creative space is, you know, you know, posting on a social media platform where your creativity is 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 within the bounds of a box that a social media platform has provided for you. So, you know, getting them to sort of break out of these these ways of being, you know, quote unquote, creative with technology that they've become really that have become really comfortable for them. Um, I think that's that's something that I'm encountering increasingly as people are pouring their creativity into fewer and fewer platform-based forms of expression. Oh yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, that's one of the reasons I, you know, have recently been kind of rebelling against Apple because you know there's that whole uh, thing, program or be programmed. I mean, they're essentially using uh, palettes within very strict software applications that will dictate how they behave. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, and and that's 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 a very interesting point, and I have complete agreements with you on that. I think that's part of the reason why I think research-based practice is important because you actually have to break students away from just uh, just learning to be users, like of the Adobe Suite. I mean, uh, they, they're they're more than button pushers, or they should be more than button pushers. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that this comes down to you know I actually want to kind of get back to this whole how do you relate this to uh, the the kind of traditional forms of art. Uh, you know, we're, one of the things we're when we're dealing with this issue, we're actually rolling up against like evolutionary biology, right? I mean, really, when, <laughs> when human beings uh, were out out and about, you know, we had to actually uh, 
shrink our understanding of the world in order to make it manageable as a, you know, so you don't get eaten by a tiger. You can't just sit there and think all the time. So it's actually part of our biology to actually kind of compartmentalize the phenomena that we see out in the world. And one of the things that is very interesting about when someone, let's say, learns to draw you know, even if even if we're talking about the Bauhaus version of, of learning drawing, is that you're not really learning about putting charcoal on paper or graphite on paper. You're actually learning to see things for what they really are. You're learning to slow down and stop compartmentalizing the forms that you see out in the world. So like mm-hmm. a nose as a line that kind of goes down and then swoops up in this nice little curly thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you actually notice that it's a series of shades and tones. And, and, and by getting them to really look at that and then research materially how that actually fits in space, that's a great metaphor to, to, for students in new media as well. Stop, look, deconstruct, mm-hmm. research, right? And, and, and that's a way to kind of fight that biological imperative that they have from yeah. as a species, you know? Um, so yeah, yeah I'm, I'm with you on that at 100%. Yeah, I mean, I agree about about trajectories of art history being important, but I also think it's so central, centrally important for us to continue to teach students about the histories of our own medium as well. So, and then linking that, and I constantly do that in my courses um, alongside my projects, is linking my linking my projects to more traditional art histories. And I can give some examples of that in a few minutes. But just linking it to more traditional art hist- quote unquote, traditional art histories or contemporary art history, um, but also linking it to new media history because new media art history has. Uh, is even in more danger of be, of getting lost, I think, as technologies develop. So an example of that is um, take something like Pokemon Go, for example. So this is a you know globally popular augmented reality game. When this came on the scene, um, it becomes super popular. People are going around catching Pokemon in the real world. And they're they're viewing this on a broad scale as being the first time that something like this has been released. But if we look at new media art history, of course, we know that you know people have been doing augmented reality, have been working with mobile devices, um, going out into the world and creating interactive experiences um, for for a very long time, for 20 plus years. Um, people like Canadian artist Jessica Thompson, for example. Um, who I think she was uh, posting on Facebook about Pokemon Go and about augmented reality and said something about how, you know, none of this is revolutionary and none of this would have been possible without media art. So it's Mm -hmm. so important that we relay to our students that media artists have developed a lot of these ideas behind the apps and technologies that we see you know, coming out and becoming really popular this time and just making them aware of those histories so those histories don't get lost. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not uh, advocating uh, not teaching new media. I always, I, I think that um, you know, about new media histories, especially, uh, I think it's really important to actually go as far, far back as possible and maybe even show, you know, uh, different kind of, uh, variations of what people considered new at that time. You know, I, I always like getting back to early visual music when you had Mary Ellen Butte 
uh, you know, who's one of the earliest people working in that, um, uh, doing stuff on oscilloscopes in the fifties, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and doing really very interesting performances and, um, and yeah, and subject wise trying to get students to, to, uh, respond and relate to that. Um, uh, yeah. Um, well, one one way that I relate back to you know art history is with one of my projects in my into my intro to web class that I mentioned earlier, which is called. Uh, let's see. It's what do I call it? It's uh, <laughs> Albers' homage to the box model, mm-hmm. and this is part of this is a second project in a series the one that i do previous to this is called complex designs wireframe and sitemap and with the complex designs project what i do there is after students have been learning html and css at the introductory level um, i have them do a basically a wireframing and a sitemapping project project that is completely off of the screen so i they've been sitting in front of screens the whole semester up to this point and i remove them from the screen and i have them just draw websites on paper using a rule and um, you know, I, I'm pretty lax about how ac- quote unquote accurate they have to be. I really right. just want them to get kind of a feel for what that website is like, just like in a figure drawing class in a way. I want them to have a holistic feeling of what that website is like, but then also strategically to get them to understand what the sizes of different parts of the page are and actually to understand pixel sizes and things like that. But they actually really love that. We kind of push the computers aside and start drawing on paper. And then once we're doing that wireframing, they're understanding boxes on the page. We move into the Albers homage to the box model project. And this is appropriate because we um, also, you know, it's compounded by the fact that we're in Asheville, which is near the site of Black Mountain, 10 minutes away from Black Mountain. So I talked to them about that history of Albers having um, taught at Black Mountain College. And we, we study the interaction of color and look at his color theory, which is, which is all new to them. Um, and I think very important for them to learn color theory when they're working on, when they're working on the web. And then um, they create, they move those boxes from the paper models into the web platform. And they can essentially do whatever they want in the web space, as long as it involves boxes of color and arranging those boxes of color in a way that's inspired by Albert's color studies. So whether they're looking at hue as value, um, boundaries of colors against each other, color manipulation, you know, different, different studies of um, color studies within the browser. And they come up with some really crazy stuff um, that can be quite complex, multi-page, have movement, you know, add things to, to the Albers color studies using their knowledge of HTML and CSS. And I really do throw them in the deep end in terms of how much HTML and CSS they've practiced up to that point. And it's a big, you know, learning process of them really solidifying how the, how the HTML CSS box model works as they're learning the color studies. Right. Right. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's great. You know, I, I think, um, I like that idea that you take them out of the trajectory. I also do that with, uh, digital foundations. You know, there's a certain point where students will learn how to construct and build up in a more additive kind of way their skill sets. And at what, at some point in that semester, it's usually by right after midterms, I actually take them in a whole new direction where we then do deconstructive, uh, platforms like using glitch art now any time that they're working in glitch art they're uh they're learning about everything from the word pad effect and sonification as techniques but they're also side by side researching 
with people like you know Rosa Minkman, um, Daniel Temkin, Kim Azendorf, Phil Stearns, how those artists are, are thinking about glitch because all those people do glitch in very, very different ways and for very different reasons. And uh, the, through that process, I also try to link them to indeterminism, right, an aleatoric composition of John Cage. So by the end, they're actually making GIFs uh, that are based on kind of random number systems that they kind of create for themselves, or random rule systems, uh, and uh, you know everything from game to look at the each chain, game to look at cage, but also perhaps even the structure of a haiku, you know, as a numer- as numerical data. And you, I've actually got some really great interactions where you can see them working through that glitch process, understanding, you know. The, what glitch does to a certain type, uh, to a certain type of image, and then how, as a GIF, as a time-based process through this aleatoric composition structure, can really kind of form it into this dynamic and interesting flowing thing that can then be put up very easily online without very much effort. Nice, nice. That's cool. Yeah, what, what are you, is there anything that you're teaching in the fall that you're kind of looking towards developing new curriculum for? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm at, at Colorado State, I'm, I'm working towards a new experimental video class and, and a new way of dealing with uh, digital foundations. Uh, I'm more interested in the video class just because, you know, the, the video is kind of my bread and butter where it came from. And I'm trying to uh, think again about how to get students into understanding the history of video as it separates itself a little bit from filmmaking and television, uh, but without kind of necessarily throwing video into that kind of uh, very highly segregated state that it was in the early 70s, um, and perhaps getting students to uh, think a little bit more about uh, initially doing performative, live, real-time uh, video in the classroom. Uh, nice. So, yeah, that, 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 that's that's where I'm looking at right now. Uh, cool. But what about you? Yeah, I'm teaching a virtual reality class, and um, I'm excited about it because I'm, you know, learning the tools as we so often are in new media, um, and I'm working in Unreal 4, um, game engine. So we're going to be building game environments and working with virtual reality. And my class has 20 students in it. And 10 of them are going to be computer science majors and 10 of them will be new media majors. And so, oh, wow. um, yeah. So, and because of our limitations of our equipment, um, we currently have two VR setups. Uh, and so it's tricky in terms of student access to the equipment inside and certainly outside of class. So the way I'm going to work with it is pair the students up where there's a computer science student and a new media student on uh, working together as a team. And then there'll be 10 of those teams. And they're going to work together through the course of the whole semester, which I'm, I anticipate having challenges, you know, in yeah, terms of yeah. long-term collaboration. Um, and then they'll each be assigned a certain day that they can work in the, in the VR lab together. So there'll be two groups 
you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and that'll be the only day of the week they'll be able to work in the lab. So I think that'll be challenging, but what I've been learning in terms of working with the software that we're going to be using in the course is that you can do a lot. If you build your, if you build your VR setup in the lab, basically you have your controllers and your headset and you know that you have an environment that's working. You can do a lot of work on other computers that aren't hooked up to the VR setup and develop your environments. And then it's actually really exciting to go in the lab and test it and see if you got things right or if things need to be lined up differently. But that moment when you put the headset on after you've been working remotely is really reveals a lot about how your process has been going. So um, I'm excited about that and seeing how that balance of computer science and new media majors, you know, half and half in the classroom. One real challenge that I foresee is teaching the new media history side and, and, and putting that into the curriculum mm -hmm. at the same level as the, um, as the production side. So right. it's always a, a challenge just in terms of the time that we have in the classroom is getting them to understand the, the theoretical underpinnings of what we're doing. Um, and that's so important to me with VR because it's so big right now, but the students are exposed to a lot of the commercial work and the work that artists are doing is just being developed. So it's really new. So yeah, trying yeah. to expose them to that and get enough content and readings about um, contemporary practice from the both the artistic and commercial sides, um, while also getting the computer scientists more up to speed with the, with new media theory and teaching this teaching the tools. So it's going to be a fun but challenging class. Oh, for sure. Well, I, I, one of the things that I, I do that may be interesting is you know the students sometimes dislike it, but I think it's good for them. Is I think it's important for students to learn actually how to teach as well. Uh, so anytime that we're dealing with kind of more historical conceptual. Uh, data that they're having to go through, they're actually having to do presentations about that. Now, that does take away some class time, but if they're in small groups, you can kind of get through them a little bit easier. Yeah, so yeah. If, if, if they're all presenting on, you know, so if, if they're looking at, okay, we're going to do a presentation on Rosa Minkman's glitch work, you know, they will actually kind of are given a structure that they have to go through certain pieces, they have to explain them in detail, and have to teach that out loud to other students. Whereas if they were writing papers, you know, it's good to get students to write, but let's face it, sometimes students will just phone it in, you know, maybe copy certain things or, or just rename certain things. But when they actually have to speak out loud and they have to become that person who is the expert, I find that they actually go a little bit beyond when they would uh, necessarily write about it. So yeah, that, that idea of with a theoretical and historical approach can actually come from the students, and then it also helps you where you don't have to be bogged down reading horrible papers all semester, so. Yeah, know. <laughs> no, I have students, I have students, that's a great suggestion. Um, I, I do have students do that with net.art in the intro to web course, so they each take on in pairs, they take on a net dot artist and talk about their their work. Um, and I've tried different platforms. In my advanced interactive design course this semester, we had seven readings, and the students paired up and they led reading discussions. Mm -hmm. So I'm still I'm still playing with it. You know whether they do presentations, whether they lead reading discussions, whether they do weekly reading responses that they can then that they can then respond to other students' reading responses on a blog type platform, or yeah, whether they write papers. It's 
it's that's the trick is finding out what's the best way time wise and also just kind of work workload wise for them and for the instructor to include that theoretical stuff and of course i always do slide presentations just to give them context about work that's happening but but still sometimes those feel rushed as well because it's like okay we have to cover this but we also have to really make sure that you know the technical skills to get done what you need to get done so yeah it's always a balance Another technique that I'm actually probably going to adopt, I was teaching postmodern art history, but I'm, I'm uh, you know, not doing that anymore, but I may adopt some of those techniques is actually to do fishbowl discussion groups, especially when you have students dealing with some pretty intense theoretical readings. So even if it's anything from Walter Benjamin to Donna Haraway, um, what I tend to find is that students, they don't really like saying it to you as a professor because they know that you know the material and they get intimidated by the fact that they're trying to report to an expert. So one of the things that the fishbowl discussions does is you actually get a group of students in a room and you create a circle that everyone else sits on outside that circle. And let's say it's like five students talking about Walter Benjamin's The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Those five students sit in the middle and they have to maintain the conversation with each other for a certain period of time Mm -hmm. and they're not speaking to you they're not speaking to anyone else and if they're not participating that's a part of how they're graded is are they actually participating in the discussion Mm -hmm. and then students actually find that they enjoy debating one another in those uh in those kind of discussion groups and i think i I think that you know because you kind of take I mean, obviously, you are the authority of the classroom, but you don't intimidate them with your authority. I find the students there who are even very shy do better in those discussion groups. Huh. Uh, and, and then at the end, I sometimes you know make a couple of comments to contextualize some things they may have missed. Uh, but they 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 get very focused in in that, and I think that that helps a little bit too. Yeah, one one technique that we work with in our inquiry art program at UNC Asheville is called chalk talk, and it basically instead of doing a traditional kind of um, you know roundtable discussion, another model is uh, writing a series of two to three questions on the the whiteboard, and then providing the markers, and then sitting down, and then the students and yourself as the faculty member. Le- quote unquote, leading the discussion can just come up and write their answers to the questions about the reading on the board. And then it becomes almost like a chat thread where they can Hmm. write cartoon bubbles out from other people's things and respond to that or make links with different lines to other things that have been said on the board. And then after that goes on for 10 minutes or so, um, then you can move into a discussion or just have, you know, as a teacher, do the wrap up and summarize what has been said on the board. And again, there's, that's another technique for getting more shy students who might be, who might speak less during group discussions to, to express themselves about the reading. Wow. That, that's, that's great. Yeah. I may actually try that out. <laughs> yeah, it works great. It works really nicely. The only other thing I would say too, though, on, you know, as we're talking about this idea of students and research and, and teaching each other, is um, I also find that it's also important if there's like new techniques, I'll actually assign certain new techniques to students to actually have to teach the rest of the class, mm-hmm. uh, because one of the things I really want, and I know you and I have done this uh, at times, and I certainly have done this with a lot of my other uh, colleagues is that uh, it teaches students how to uh, teach one another 
and not rely on the professor. Like they don't want to drop everything, but I can't do this project anymore. I'll wait for the professor to come in that they can feel uh, confident that their friends also may know the techniques. And so they began to work with another and be each other's tech supports. Because I think that's another thing that happens in the media. That's really, I struggle with a lot is students. They, they, when they run into a problem, they stop production and then they wait to get permission to go forward once they get an answer from the instructor. Oh, I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know. Do you intentionally pair them up for that or put them into groups? Oh, yeah, tech, yeah. tech support groups? Yeah, I, I, try, I try to. Some, some drop out of that, but I try to get them to really think about, okay, well, you know, Jordan over here figured out this problem before. You should talk to Jordan, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not that I don't know the answer. It's that they, they need to feel empowered to to not because ultimately they're not gonna have me in a few years when they're out out and about in the field. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, but I think it's also important for them to know that you may not know the answer. <laughs> I'm, okay. very, I'm very clear about that in the classroom is you know, I say I say I don't know often and I'm confident in saying that because I think that's my 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 intentionality with that, and I do I, I do think it's important to say that to them, um, is that I don't know everything about the field because the field is expansive, and every question, every technical question that you have may not be an exact thing that I've encountered before. So yeah, drawing upon peers um, and research based knowledge for that, in addition to the instructor, is a very useful skill for them to have. But that 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 loops around to something that I've just been thinking about in terms of my own pedagogy recently is intentionality um, and being much more explicit with students from the get-go about why I do certain things in the classroom to the extent that, um, you know, maybe on the first day of class, I asked them about what, uh, I asked them uh, to talk to me about what they're what, what they're hoping to get out of the class. And I guess that's a pretty conventional first day thing to do. But then carrying that conversation through the semester and kind of checking in about where we are with that. In my, in my advanced interactive design course last semester, I asked them on the first day of class, um, what would, what would make this the best class you've ever taken? And what would make this the worst class you've ever taken? And we kind of made a list on the board <laughs> of those things. And it was very interesting to write that down and then revisit that with the students and myself too, um, over the course of the semester about, you know, what do we value as teachers and what do students value? And just kind of checking in with that and being more intentional and, and saying out loud the things that I'm thinking as a teacher to the students in a way that's uh, maybe less self-conscious than I may have done in the past. Well, and that, that helps with their, you know, I, I think that's fantastic. Uh, it really does help with their uh, assumptions. You know, and one of the things I try to tell my students is uh, the only thing I know for sure, absolutely for sure, is that what I know today will be gone tomorrow. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah. so, Setting up that expectation that this is an exploration, you should always keep your eye on the ball. We're we're going to go through this together. We are going to grow. It will hold some things behind, but that tomorrow there's always a new day, which is actually really kind of great because who really wants to figure it all out anyways? If it all gets figured out, 
what does that say about creativity? So yeah, 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 and and I'm saying that out loud because I think I think I often make that assumption that that's what I'm that's the that's that's the philosophy that I'm living by, um, you know, is that is that we're all constantly learning and growing and that we can't know everything. But again, you know, saying that out loud to them and making sure that we're all on the same page about that and that they're they're learning that way of of living with technology is is really important, increasingly important in my teaching. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I'm going to jump in there. That is an awesome note to end this conversation on. (laughs) Uh, Thank you both. This was so interesting. And also, I think there's a ton of stuff in there that uh, people from all different sorts of media, art, history, design can, can really adapt and use in their own courses as well. So thank you. Oh great, yeah. Thanks, Victoria. You're you're always wonderful to talk to and really <laughs> exciting intellectual. Uh, I enjoy uh, and you know it's 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 fun to also say hi because I like. Likewise, you. likewise, Jason. <laughs> thanks for thanks for having me, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I, I wish you the best in your in your new inve- in your new endeavor oh, in Colorado. You.